Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Thanks very much for joining me today for a conversation with one of my favorite, favorite, favorite colleagues. So you'll hear in a few moments um, my conversation with Tim Cheek about his recent book, The Intellectual in Modern Chinese History. This came out with Cambridge University Press in 2015. Now, what the book does is take us into really significant um, ideas, texts, work by Chinese intellectuals over a range of periods in modern Chinese history. And it winds up being not just a really, really useful and illuminating and engagingly written text to read and to learn from just as a, as a person, as a human, but also a text that's going to be, I think, really useful to teach with and to teach from as well. So what the book does, um, and you'll hear about this in a a few moments to come, is it offers tools for organizing the history of modern Chinese intellectuals. It focuses on six ideological moments, each embodying a basic orientation toward reform, revolution, or rejuvenation. It takes readers into what Tim calls distinct worlds of intellectual life. And in each case, it looks at not just change, but also the continuity and transformation of some core ideas. And these include the idea of people, the idea of Chinese, and the idea of democracy. But there's lots of other stuff going on. So the structure of the book is very, very um, carefully wrought, and it's one of the reasons that the book is so clear um, to work through. Each chapter begins with a snapshot that reflects the particular ideological moment that Tim is talking about. It then moves to a section called Voices, um, which includes short extracts of primary sources, work by a handful of Chinese intellectuals of that moment that in some way epitomize what's going on in the particular chapter. The chapter then describes the particular ideological moment it focuses on, and it explores the lives, the work, the writings of representative intellectuals in that moment. And they're often intellectuals of various sorts, various kinds, who are doing um, very different kinds of work and taking different kinds of approaches to the issues at hand. It then ends with a return to these three enduring ideas that I mentioned, the people, Chinese, and democracy, as they transformed in the context of the particular ideological moment. So it's, um, I mean, there's so much going on here. In the conversation to come, you'll hear us talk about some of the major arguments, um, some of the moments from the text uh, that for me emerged as particularly um, interesting or powerful, but there's so much more in the book um, to explore. And so I hope you'll get your hands on a copy of the book and read it for yourself because it's really extraordinarily rich. Okay, so with that, I will leave you to it and just say thank you so so much for listening and for your support of the channel, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Timothy Cheek about his new book, The Intellectual in Modern Chinese History. Welcome to the New Books in EAS podcast, Tim, and thanks for coming over and making time to talk with me today. Thank you, Carla. It's great to be here. So, Tim, let's start with the big general traditional question. How did you come to work on China, and why modern China specifically? By mistake. (laughs) Uh, uh, My family are immigrants from Australia to the United States, and we went back and forth. And so I was very aware of chocolate. In the 1960s, Cadbury's was not in America, and Hershey's was not in Australia. And so from comparative chocolate studies, we began. And uh, when I went to university, I went uh, back to Australia because my father worked in the World Bank, and they paid for it. I was third son, and that's what we could afford. And on my way, I stopped off in Auckland and uh, with a typical youthful story, ended up meeting the Chinese professor because I had fraudulently registered uh, so I could go to the dance because the girls looked nice. And uh, I was registered for Japanese studies. I I wanted to do 
Asia and compared it when I went into university. And in the early 1970s, uh, India had no history. It was all religion. China had too much history. And Japan was just right. And I thought I could get a job. But uh, from my misadventure in Auckland, the uh, Chinese professor, uh, I signed up for, uh, for Chinese so I could go to the dance. And uh, I, everything would have worked, except that I went, I had the afternoon, so I went and looked at the Chinese department, which, of course, was a single room with a single professor who started lending me books. And uh, when I confessed and turned them in, he did not call security, but he did write a note to the professor at the Australian National University, and I shifted. That's why I started. Why I stayed with it is that I love Chinese history and culture. That may be the best um, creation story <laughs> coming to work that I have ever heard in Slightly the 370 tantric. something um, times that I've done this, which is awesome. Okay, so I'll give listeners a sense of the nature of the book we're talking about, and then we can kind of dive in a little bit. Sure. So the preface of the book mentions the tendency to focus on dissidents when engaging with Chinese intellectuals, and it suggests that this is a problem, in the words of the book, insofar as we use these intellectuals as a mirror for our own concerns, our own hopes, and our own fears. So the book provides both a map and a method for moving beyond that. Um, and also shows why it's important to move beyond that. It maps, in the words of the book, the changing terrain of intellectual life over a century so that the reader can place a particular figure, idea, or debate sensibly. And this map helps the reader track different times, social worlds, and key concepts. And it also demonstrates a method for, again, in the words of the book, making sense of ideas, stories, and examples from the past. And this method is the historical method. Okay, Tim. So let's talk about the genesis of the project. Mm -hmm. What brought you um, to this, and how did you decide to create this like really magisterial and really, really rich book-length object about this particular set of issues? Um, I've always worked on modern China, though I was trained in a sonology program and did, did my classical readings. Um, and two things shaped me. Uh, Merle Goldman and uh, Mark Selden. And in the 70s, Merle Goldman was, oh, the terrible things the communists have done to intellectuals. And Mark Selden was, oh, the Yinan way, it's so terrific. It's much better than napalm, you know, anti Vietnam. And, you know, basically, I believe them both. And, you know, the history of particularly the communist movement is that terrible dichotomy mm -hmm. uh, between some real achievements and ideals and horrible things. And so I've wrestled with that. And so my work has um, bridged between intellectuals and the party, and party history. And when it came to this, I wanted to write uh, uh, something. I felt, having done monographic work, I wanted to do an overview. And so I put it in the short version. Uh, what got me into this project was to do Merle Goldman right. She was one of my advisors, and she has published any number of well-researched, wonderfully written uh, and extremely influential books. And I thought, you know, I, she's nothing but good to me, but I do disagree. She is always looking for Russian refuseniks with Chinese characteristics. And in the Cold War, that made a lot of sense to folks. And, but I always had some troubles with that. And she, even in the 80s when I was in graduate program, you know, she'd say, well, Timothy, I just don't understand what you're, what you're getting at here. You know, you're making it so complicated. So, uh, now, I decided I was going to do Merle Goldman right. I'd like to write a book that would reach a broader audience, but that would uh, reflect the best of scholarship. And it nearly killed me. It took me five years, including one year of utter uh, writer's block. Okay, that sounds like nothing, though. Five years to me sounds like super, super quick. Um. <laughs> well, it's drawing, you know, <laughs> on the work that I've done for uh, a couple decades. Uh, but uh, the, the point of the story is, you know, it was easy as a graduate student to nitpick Merle's writings because she smoothed them and, and made them, you know, accessible. But boy, when you come to do it yourself, it is not so easy. How do you tell a big story without falling into the traps that I saw her fall into? Well, okay, so she was stuck in the Cold War view of Refusnik, Russian Refusnik. She wants to find the Chinese Solzhenitsyn and, and, and Sakharov. What makes me think that my assumption of what's really important is going to be any better? Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the kind of ideal reader for the book or the 
if not the ideal reader, at least how you envision the book being used. So it's um, to give listeners a sense of what's in here, there is a lot in here. It's an extraordinarily rich book, as I've just um, already mentioned. And it's also really beautifully written, really clearly written, and really, really clearly laid out. And so I asked the question because I can imagine this being used not just by readers who want to learn something about intellectuals over the course of um, the long 20th century, like modern Chinese history up to 2015, really. Um, but also, I can imagine this being a really fantastic book to teach with, both to prepare somebody to uh, lecture on some of this stuff, but also to assign this to students at a whole bunch of different levels for discussion um, and in lots of different kinds of classes, actually. So what were you envisioning when you put this together? In short, uh, this is the kind of book I want someone else to write about Middle Eastern intellectuals or South Asian intellectuals. Like, yes, readable, engage, treat the reader as intelligent and able to focus over more than three paragraphs, but don't kill me with lots of foreign scripts and, you know, arguments with your colleagues, you know. And uh, I learned how to do this in two ways. Uh, you know, I had the standard graduate training. Uh, it's very specialized. I'm a China Center historian from the, from the 80s. And, um, uh, but I taught for 15 years at Colorado College, mm-hmm. American undergraduate liberal arts school. And, you know, that was my, that was my real education doing all kinds of comparative things and uh, how to communicate and how to get, you know, and, and these working with people who I was the only, you know, China historian and, you know, I, I was the Asia historian and smart questions from people who didn't know much about Asia. And I learned so much. Mm-hmm. The other is in my career, I've, I've done, you know, sort of a, a documentary textbook and uh, uh, a, a sort of a Z book, you know, a book sort of a, a, the, 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 Brit, the famous British intelligent general reader. And I wanted to do that. To do that here, and so the techniques that are in the book, um, the short, uh, it borrows some techniques from textbooks, mm-hmm. but tries to present uh, more of a narrative history, and so you don't have questions at the end of the chapter, that kind of stuff, and it's pretty advanced. I mean, it's uh, not light going. But it's really readable, um, I'll say, and I will be using this to teach the next time I teach Chinese history, if I teach anything modern. Um, And I'm I'm being completely honest um, about that. And also, Banjo, shout out, because you mentioned teaching prior to to coming to UBC. You actually taught um, the famous Abby Washburn. Washburn. So we need to just mark that, (laughs) um, have a moment of Banjo appreciation. There you go. It's my my Banjo claim to fame. (laughs) I'm I'm an enthusiastic listener. So speaking of serving the public good, um, this actually brings us into the book itself. So a consistent, and and I'll say a little bit and then um, ask you to talk a little bit about some of this. A consistent theme unifies the narrative, and you say this right in the preface. The importance of serving the public good expressed in various versions of the phrase serve the people. And we see this um, and really different and changing and multiple variations of what this can mean, what this did mean over time. It's not one notion. It's not one concept. And there are lots of different ways of thinking about this and practicing it, as we'll see in the chapters to come. Um, and you also mentioned some of the questions that the book brings to understanding intellectuals in modern China. What was on their minds? What shaped their world? Who were some of the main actors? Um, and, and there are other questions as well. You also talk, and here's where I want to kind of hit the tennis ball back to you. You talk about some of the key assumptions of the book, and I think this is, um, I'd just really love to hear you talk a little bit about this. One is that ideas matter. Two is that intellectual traditions are invented. And three, and here's the one I'd really love um, to hear you talk a little bit about, foreign ideas can become Chinese over time. Right? I think any of us who went to grad school and got into what seem in retrospect to be like ridiculous debates over like, well, can you use that here? Because that's not a Chinese concept. Well, what do you mean Chinese concept? Well, you can't say that. I mean, like we've had these, we've all had these conversations, right? But um, this is a really thoughtful um, kind of question and issue to bring to the text in a way that really transcends that, like, it's not Chinese. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Um, so I'd love to just hear you talk about that as it animates what you care about here in the volume. Well, you know, I'll have to blame uh, Edward Schaefer mm-hmm. on the uh, Golden Peaches of Samarkand oh. when I realized, oh, my God, the Tang Dynasty, they were, like, totally into foreign things. And, you know, your work and Tim Brooks' work have shown 
in, in, in the late imperial period, all, movement of ideas back and forth. Mm. And uh, it's no different uh, in uh, the 20th century, but it's more intense uh, because of the uh, power relations. Uh, uh, so um, the, uh, as I sat back and be honest about the assumptions I'm working with, ideas do matter. And uh, there's a school of thought that says, oh, they're just epiphenomena that are a reflection of social structure and this and that. And uh, my litmus test is, well, look at the people who died for ideas, various ideas. Uh, hard to say that you know, that's social structurally uh, uh, derived, though you, you might be able to make the case. Um, invented traditions, I think, you know, the, the reason I started with uh, uh, Serve the People, which, of course, is the famous Maoist quote, I want to unpack it for the 20th century, because it's what constitutes service, who should do it, who should be served, what kind of people, that you can get into all those interesting questions. Mm-hmm. And similar questions were being asked at the turn of the 20th century. It wasn't Mao who thought this up. But it, it really speaks to the second question of invented traditions, which is I was raised, going to university in the 70s and 80s, that there was the Confucian tradition of serving the state. Well, you know, Ben Elman and others have unpacked that big time that, you know, 90% of the people didn't serve the state. There just weren't jobs. And so what was this? And what I do think in the 20th century is this idea that you, you have to serve the state was just an excuse for the Bolshevik parties. Uh, but in reality, there's always been the urge to serve the public good. But the service to the state was certainly a major one, but there were many others. Mm-hmm. And finally, the... The, what I got out of the 20th century was Chinese intellectuals were engaged with foreign ideas much more than before. This is unique to the 20th century, and it may be unique. Maybe in the 21st century, they're like, you know, we don't need your, you know, your wasted, you know, post-democratic societies. You know, they may not pay any interest in, to to Western ideas anymore, but they certainly did in the 20th century. And so the issue there is, are you Chinese or not? And what is clear through example after example is that different intellectuals, conservative, radical, neo-traditional, absorb clearly uh, exogenous and new ideas and put them to local use uh, in ways that obviously reflect their own agency and their own needs and interests. So that this idea of foreign ideas is really not the kind of problem we thought it was. You also talk, Tim, about a shift um from working on China to working with Chinese. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's, that's the key background to this. Um, in my career, I was trained as a China-centered historian, which is you're supposed to read as much Chinese as possible, Wenyan, Baihua, culture, arts, everything, and then tell people in English about it. And uh, particularly in the, in the late 70s and early 80s, we didn't really engage with Chinese scholars that much for reasons that we all know in terms of the limitations of their lives at the time. But certainly since the late 90, mid-90s, there's just been, there's been 20 years of fantastic work in every field. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's no longer really my job uh, to explain China uh, as, as the expert. Uh, I feel I'm much more a collaborator with my Chinese colleagues who on any particular topic know way more than I do. They can just read the Chinese so much faster. Uh, and, but that I can bring things to the table and they can bring things to the table. And so my work in the last 15, 20 years has been collaborative. And it changes the questions we ask. So the purpose of the whole book, you said, one is for the general reader, like I would like to read about uh, the Middle East, an intelligent book that introduces all these names and what the heck is going on. Um, but for, for sinologists and historians, this is more a handbook to help you work with your colleagues than to have the explanation of uh, China. Mm-hmm. And there's um, really a spirit along those lines of generosity about um, other people's ideas and that I really appreciated in the book, and that's really there in every single chapter. So That's one thing I'd actually like to comment on. This is not a traditional monograph, and my model was um, Jerome Greeter's wonderful book on the intellectual uh, and the state in modern China, where the section on Chen show, there are seven pages, all footnotes to gender show Chuanji, and then same with Hu Shi and this. So I started off going back and reading the Chinese text of these people, and I know I'm, I, I know my Chinese, but I discovered that I was not adding meaningfully to the translations already published in the wonderful Columbia uh, University collection, sources of Chinese traditions and others, and it became clear to me that 
that was just to prove to myself that I could still do it. And it's actually more useful. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was uh, just amazed at the quality of the work of my colleagues. Mm-hmm. And we have a wonderful, the stuff that we've published in the last, well, 40, 50 years, so many wonderful things that are easily accessible to the intelligent comparativists. So one of my audience is comparativists. Mm-hmm. And so they can read thousands of pages of well-translated Chinese intellectuals. Mm-hmm. And you can get them out of the footnotes of this book. Great. Um, so what I'm going to do is just super briefly say a little bit about the structure of the book, and then we're going to dive in. Okay, so um, the book focuses on six ideological moments, which each embody a basic orientation toward reform, revolution, um, and or rejuvenation. It takes readers into distinct worlds of intellectual life and look looks at enduring ideas in each context. And we'll talk a little bit about these. You've already talked about some of them, the idea of people or the people, the idea of Chinese, um, and the idea of democracy. And these really change, interestingly, over the course of these moments. And we'll talk about some of that in the rest of the conversation to come. So in terms of the structure of the book, uh, this is just for listeners, each chapter begins with a snapshot that reflects the ideological moment. It then moves to voices, which are short extracts of work by a handful of Chinese intellectuals of that moment. And these are great and also kind of super great to teach with, I think. And then the chapter describes briefly the ideological moment and explores the writings and lives of representative intellectuals in that moment. And that's in the words of the book. It ends with a return to these three enduring ideas as they transformed in the context of this moment. Um, Again, people, Chinese, and democracy. Okay, so let's dive into the first chapter. So there is so much listeners going on in these chapters that we're not even going to pretend like it's possible to even begin to imagine what it would be to be comprehensive in this medium. So instead, we're just going to kind of quickly skip our way through and highlight some of the moments to give you a sense of what you'll find when you become a reader of the book. All right, chapter one, reform, making China fit the world. This focuses on 1895 to 1915. The key questions here, right, in this ideological moment of reform, how to save China, what kinds of change are needed to enable what's important in the world we grew up with to endure and prosper. And there's lots of really great um, uh, development of um, uh, these questions in the chapter. Okay, so what I want to ask you to do to sort of set the stage um, is to talk about some of the, um, here at the beginning of the story, these enduring ideas, Mm -hmm. right? The people, Chinese, and democracy. So you talk about the people here generally um, being discussed in terms of Chun, um, which came into prominent use in political language in this moment. Chinese was generally in terms of hua or fluorescence, and democracy um, kind of comes to public discussions, um, in particular through Japan and the word minzu, right? And there's efforts to seek a kind of Republican form of democracy. Okay, so Tim, what are you most interested in here? And can you talk a little bit about um, what you think is most important about what's happening in this moment? I think that what I came to do in this chapter is to explore the question of where do, you know, Mao famously said where do correct ideas come from, but where do new ideas come from? Mm -hmm. And so looking at um, intellectual behavior in the social environment, and what I end up emphasizing is Liang Qichao, Zhang Bingling, uh, Lu Xun, these these people who are profiled, um, they weren't trained to do this. And in fact, as we sort of start by talking about what is an intellectual? Why are we using this word? What does it mean in Chinese? Um, there were no uh before 1915, um, the, or at least the concept didn't exist. Uh, so the people in the first chapter aren't even intellectuals. They are scholars. They're shi dai fu. They're, they're shi, right? And um, the, m- most of them were, well, the older ones were exam uh, uh, graduates. Um, and um, so they were not equipped for this new world. So it's People use inherited ideas to to deal with fresh problems in novel situations. And that's how you get new ideas. And so I try to trace that. And the, Zhang Bingling is talking about what is it to be Chinese? And, and so he's the one who, who, who calls a, neth, a minzu a zhonghua. And that, what is a zhonghua minzu? That, what is a central fluorescent you know, uh, uh, people clan? 
right? So it's it's all this ill-fitting. So it, it, I, the first chapter gets to play with language a little bit and words and concepts. And I'm fond of um, uh, Reinhard Koselleck's Begriffsgeschichte. Uh, I don't speak German. Um, but the history of concepts uh, is a very helpful way to get at these things. And so, in fact, enduring ideas that we, with the, the, the ones we chase, um, are really um, concepts in that, con- in, in that idea, in, the, in, the, in, in Koslek's way, formative assumptions. So, yes, people came, and they came, there was, there was word for people, Chun and Min and things in, in earlier Chinese, but in this new, ideological moment, which is the combination of uh, political, social, world events and how people experienced them. And the questions of the day and how they engaged and debated them was, how, do we, how are we going to strengthen China? And they decided, as we all know from reading these materials, that you had to empower the people. And yet there's this dichotomy in them. And I purposely use some embarrassing quotes from the Yang Chichao saying, if we go to democracy now, it'll be a disaster. The Chinese people are not ready. And, you know, later on, um, other intellectuals in the 30s said the same thing. You know, it's not just the communists who say this. There's a certain elitism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet they move from serving the the dynasty to serving the people. And they wrestle with how can we serve the people. Now, you talk in this chapter as well um, about something that actually also emerges as a theme throughout the book, and this is the nature of or the emergence of a new public sphere, right? Um, You talk about this here in terms of print capitalism and China's new public sphere. Um, In fact, early in the introduction, you had talked already before this about um, the changing public public sphere in China. And you talk about the transformation from kind of print capitalism to a propaganda state to a directed public sphere. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about that? For me, that's one of the important things that emerged in this book, uh, which is the uh, stage uh, for uh, public engagement, for for China's thinkers and writings speaking on public affairs. And uh, uh, when I do talks, I say, where do Chinese intellectuals speak? Not what do they say, where do they speak? And it changed fundamentally over the 20th century. And so if we're going to understand how the word democracy, to link these two questions, the way it's addressed in print capitalism, the way it's addressed under the propaganda state, and the way it's addressed in the contemporary uh, directed public sphere are fundamentally shaped by those structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, and, and the different social experience of different people at different uh, ideological moments, whether they're fighting fascism or in the Cold War or uh, being Shangshi Zhongguo, you know, the prosperous China. Um, so it's, I guess I'm trying to set up the multivariant analysis, you know, the various things that when you read a certain person you want to keep in mind. And the, what I want to leave the reader with is how was the public sphere structured at the time that this person was expressing themselves and engaging people? In print capitalism, there, China, you know, which had printing long before Europe, didn't have public newspapers in the modern sense. Mm-hmm. And they came in in the, in the mid-19th century. It was foreign. Mm-hmm. And they just embraced it. And it's clear, I do a little comparison with Japan, a very similar pattern happened in Japan with the Meiji. And so the kind, I call it educational journalism, you know, that it's this elite sign that we're going to teach people how they ought to think for their own good. Mm-hmm. And it's in there in Liang Chichao, it's in there with Liang Shuming, it's in there with Chiang Kai-shek, it's in there with almost all, but not all. Let's talk about Liang Chuming, actually. And this brings us into um, the next chapter, which uh, looks at an ideological moment of revolution from 1915 to 1935 and addresses the key question or kind of opens up um, and translates the key question, how to awaken the Chinese people in order to save themselves from the danger of foreign domination and domestic misrule specifically. Mm -hmm. So how do we understand Liang Chuming in this context since you already brought it up? Yeah. I think we, I, phrasing the ideological moment and the question of the day in the way that you've just said, how do we awaken the Chinese people? Liang Shuming is in the mainstream. He's not the leftover, you know, uh, uh, counter-revolutionary. He's just as revolutionary. He's got a different revolution. And he believes in the people, the common people, like Mao, and yet it's different. You know, instead of peddling Stalin and, and Comintern, He's peddling Song Dynasty village covenants, right? And, and, and yet he likes science. Uh, 
uh, Liang Shuming just became even more interesting to me. Um, also in the context of Yan Yang Chu, of uh, James Yen, and the mass education movement. And uh, the uh, scholars have noted before some of the influence, because it's the 1930s turn to the countryside, that a number, in the late 20s and 30s, uh, that this effort uh, that they made. And what's important is that Liang Shuming couldn't sustain it. And James Yen couldn't sustain it. And it comes to the question of the, quote, failure of liberalism. Mm-hmm. And another foreign ideology that became, an set of ideas that became very Chinese, is um, liberalism. And so I use the case of Hu Shi, but also uh, Lo Lungji and others. They understood liberalism fully, completely, as we understand it. Uh, you know, uh, elections, democracy, parties, constitutions. They were forever arguing for when the hell is the constitution coming in? And yet it didn't work. And my take on it from having focused on different ideological moments was this is not some incompatibility between Chinese culture and, uh, uh, and liberalism uh, or rule of law. It was just really bad luck. Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, uh, Toy- uh, I think it's Toynbee calls it the um, uh, age of extremes. And, you know, it is, uh, um, it, 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 that's what it was. It, it's, it, liberalism does not work well when you are being invaded and uh, you have a social breakdown, and people are poor. And I wanted to emphasize that, in the Hu case, that the Chinese have understood quite well. They have developed Chinese liberalism. Uh, they understood Western liberalism doesn't mean they copied it fully. But they had a very workable one, the Democratic League, and Liang Shuming was involved in that too. Um, and I see those as seeds. They were not propitious environment in the 40s and 50s, but if the environment changed, I think those Chinese seeds could grow again. Right. And we see, um, speaking of the 40s and 50s, right, we see Hushar come up again um, in a kind of different context in the next chapter, which looks at the, uh, the period 1936 to 1956. Um, this takes us into an ideological moment of rejuvenation of building China, where the key question becomes how to build the new China. Now, we see Hoosier coming up in a conversation here that's also about two really fascinating figures, um, Chen Bule and Wuhan. And this is where you talk in Chapter 3 in this period of rejuvenation about the perils of state service. Right? Yeah. So um, could you, Tim, bring us into what's happening here? And for you, um, maybe what's um, potentially most interesting or important about this ideological moment? This was the siren call of political service uh, that is not unique to Chinese, but maybe Chinese intellectuals with the Confucian tradition have a predilection for if asked to serve and bring order because of a belief in a pedagogical state, uh, a state that is uh, not just the umpire, but is actually going to make everyone's life better than they should, ha- they should have smart people, you know, like me, all right? And so it's a weakness. And wh- I didn't set out to do this, but it, uh, it came up in looking at Chembule and uh, Wuhan. So Chembule was uh, Chiang Kai-shek's uh, personal secretary, very influential uh, 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 man and a ghostwriter for a number of Chiang Kai-shek's uh, books and things. So he really served. And he was already a May 4th intellectual, a journalist, independent, you know, he wasn't some loser who just went in, you know, like the, the creeps who sort of went into the Nazi party, couldn't make it anywhere else. This, this guy left good work at working for the commercial press, um, albeit at the time when he was a little unhappy with the local government in Shanghai in 1927. Um, and it was the story that he shares with Wuhan is the power of agency, that political leadership matters. I have such a structural approach with public spheres and concepts. I wanted to come back to, you know, agency matters. I mean, mm-hmm. politi- political scientists are right. Uh, choice matters and, and leadership matters. And Chiang Kai-shek was able to win this very talented man over who served him for the next 20 years. Ended very sadly. He committed suicide in 1948. Wuhan, um, very famous historian uh, and, and liberal uh, intellectual in the 1940s, a wonder kid, uh, famous for his biography of Zhu Yuanzhang of the Ming Dynasty, published in 43, was really a critique of Chiang Kai-shek. And Mao just won him over. Mm. And he he worked as an underground party member. He, he, he wanted to join the party in 1948. They said, no, we want you to be in charge of the United Front. And so he served. And so it was Mao's charisma that brought this talented 
man in. He served as vice mayor of, of, of Beijing and um, hit the heart, hit the hit the skids in the Cultural Revolution. But uh, the I wanted to use this to try to explore, and I use other examples in, in, as well, why people were interested, what it was like, and why it went wrong. Okay. Now, bringing up Mao, right? Um, this is this I think really nicely also brings us into what's happening in the next ideological moment, right? I mean, this is a period from 1957 to 1976, and you show here that these three key. I mean, you show a lot of things here, mm-hmm. right? But um, in particular, these three key ideas. Uh, the people, what it is to be Chinese, um, what democracy means, really took on a different cast in this period. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's very helpful because uh, we go from Chun to Renmin, and we have Renmin in Chapter 2 in the lovely little poster from the May 30th movement in 1925. But by by Mao's time, the Renmin are are defined by socioeconomic class. Mm -hmm. And so capitalists are not Renmin. Mm -hmm. They're not people. And so that the, what makes you Chinese, you know, what it is socialist, what makes you the people is your class position, uh, the, and democracy is participation under guidance, central, uh, 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 democratic centralism. And so Mao, if you just take sentences of Mao, he'll talk about democracy, he'll talk about the people, and you know, it's just not the same as, as and you can compare it, uh, he and Chiang Kai-shek are not that far apart because they are both Children of Sun Yat-sen, mm-hmm. and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I am a uh, a fan and a devotee of uh, uh, John Fitzgerald's uh, Awakening China, and uh, all these things that we put down to uh, the communists and to the Kuomintang, they were set by Sun Yat-sen in 23 to 25, mm-hmm. the charismatic party, the leader, the ideology, and the, really the difference between what I see between Mao and Chiang Kai-shek is that Chiang Kai-shek couldn't make it work, Mao did. Mm-hmm. For better or for worse. I just um, like gave a big lecture to a bunch of students on the recent Chinese sci-fi novel, The Three Body Problem, which yes. is set in part in the Cultural Revolution, and brought my copy of Mao's Little Red Book and was waving it around and reading to them from it. And it really does sound, I mean, if you read it, you know, women are amazing, everything's great, you guys are awesome. Honor of labor. Exactly. Like, it sounds very... Sounds good. And um, so in that chapter, what happens is, you know, now it's, you know, when you say, oh, cultural revolution, horrible, mm-hmm. bad, holocaust. So why did people do it? Right. And so I wanted to give a, a sense of um, the people who embraced it. I used the example of Zhang Tunchao, one of the gang of, mm-hmm. later one of the Gang of Four, mm-hmm. smart guy, uh, as Andy Walter taught us from, from, the, from years ago. Um, and uh, the, the people who resisted it or survived, Zhang uh, 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 Yan, uh, the uh, Yang Jing, uh, who, um, you know, beautiful human experience of, you know, being in the cadre camp and just the stupidity and wastefulness of it, but especially the youth, why they loved it and where did they go to. And I end up spending a bit of time with the Li'ija group mm-hmm. because out of the Cultural Revolution experience, it generated, Mao wanted young people to understand that there is oppression and that you can resist. And they learned it, just not the way he thought, because they said, there is oppression, and the oppressor is the Communist Party, and we can resist, we can resist the Communist Party. He said, no, 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 you're just supposed to resist my enemies, not that. And uh, which, again, this is how creativity happens, right? The, the state didn't set out to have what happened happen. So this actually, um, this moment, the Cultural Revolution moment, becomes one of the touchstones that motivates the key question for the next period, too. So as we move from this period to 1976 to 1995, um, this the ideological moment devoted to reforming the revolution here, as you put it, the key question becomes, how do we reform China's socialist system so that the Cultural Revolution could never happen again and the, and the party and socialism could prosper at the same time? So really interesting things happen to our three enduring ideas here, right? The people, we see um, the kind of, the people become individuals, uh, Chinese, what it is to be Chinese focuses more on culture. Um, The idea of democratic uh, centralism is challenged. Can you talk about what you think is most interesting about what's happening here? Oh, I just think it shows the richness of Chinese intellectual life. Uh, Even uh, within the Chinese Stalinist Maoist doctrine, 
the alienation debate that uh, Wang Roche and Zhou Yang and others uh, pioneered in the early 1980s was an effort to rethink. And I quote uh, Wang Roche at some sense about alienation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you couldn't, you know, Andrew Nathan or, you know, uh, you know, uh, an anti-communist critic could make no more harsh assessment than Wang Roche made when he was writing for the People's Daily. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, so this was a really heartfelt internal auto critique. And yet others like Fang Li just they just said, forget it. Mm-hmm. This is trash. And he believes in science. And he uses science to basically dis angles with it. So that's why we end up talking about uh, astrophysics. Mm-hmm. It was actually politically a very vibrant issue because it had to do with whether the science in standard Marxism is valid anymore. And if it's not valid, it raises the question, what about the rest of it? Speaking of free body problem and yes. astrophysics, so and the, the aliens. There you go. So, and it's a, a finally sure. And James William has done wonderful translations and analysis of it. I mean, there's great stuff in English, you know, uh, thousand pages of stuff you can read. And uh, Perry Link has just translated his memoirs, which I think are brilliant. Mm-hmm. So th- that's stuff that's out there for folks. Li Zeho, the philosopher, does the same. He uses Immanuel Kant to, to pick apart uh, 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 dialectics, you know, to just to dethrone Hegel. And so these are internal critiques that start with trying to fix it, and then they're saying, like, maybe we ought to trash it. Mm-hmm. And that's what leads you up to 1989. Because the party goes, hold on, time out. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about what you think um, emerges as particularly significant uh, around 1989 in terms of how we understand these three enduring ideas. Like, what... What transforms significantly about the people or Chinese or democracy as a result of 1989? I think 89 was the, the last phase of the Maoist development mm-hmm. uh, before really engaging with globalization. And so China's uh, economy was, was pretty autarkic at that point. And so these are all internal forces, really rich forces. They, and to me, they feel like late Ming. You know, you're fighting for all this stuff. You know, and then, then of course, in comes the Manchus, right? You know, and so you know, basically, you know, in comes the WTO, mm-hmm. uh, and that'll change everything for the last chapter. And uh, the um, the problem there was incomplete demalification. So unlike uh, Khrushchev, Deng Xiaoping wasn't going to trash the supreme leader and blame him because they saw what happened. People stopped believing in, you know, and then uh, uh, the Soviet Union was sclerotic and they could see it even in the 80s. They didn't think it would possibly fall. Um, And so it was really the power structure of the party versus ideals had become totally separated. And uh, it really came to a dead end. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I really see uh, Tiananmen as basically the crisis and failure of the socialist experiment. So in comes the WTO, right? And this brings us to the last body chapter really nicely, which looks at the period from 1996 to 2015. Um, now, WTO and the world part of WTO specifically becomes really, really um, that this idea of world and worlding and how China um, engages with, is responsible to, um, is part of the world becomes Uh, really interesting here and really different. So the ideological moment is defined by here the idea of the Chinese dream and the perils of prosperity. And the key question becomes how to be a great power, also how to be the version of this, a just society and a positive leader in the world. Um, So can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, this is what I found ultimately satisfying and useful about taking the ideological moments approach because it just really helps us to see, my gosh, it's just a different world. And of course, it's not the same as generations because people live through a couple different ones. But it's, you know, now what do we talk about today? Before 2008, what did we talk about? After 2008, what did we talk about? You know, we go from war on terror to uh, financial crisis, right? So it's that kind of stuff. And whatever the crisis that China had hit in 89, whatever you think about it, they pulled the rabbit out of the hat. Mm-hmm. The Communist Party is still in charge, and the place is a lot richer. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole different question that we can look at. It's a fascinating one. But the point for intellectuals is, here we are. And two things have been made abundantly clear. Thou shall not criticize the party openly, mm-hmm. or you shall rot. And number two is, you know, I call it like the, the Taiwan 1970s deal. 
Stay away from the party. Make money. Right? And what happens to society? And we know about all the follow-ons of reform, unemployment, uh, income uh, differentials, Gini coefficient, pollution, uh, tensions around the peripheries, all these things. These now are the problems. But it's a fundamentally different... Step back 100 years. The questions that Liang Qichao was facing in the early years of the 20th century and the questions that Xu Jilin or Tse Zhe Yuan or Chan Kun Chong are facing in the early 21st centuries are so fundamentally different. China is strong. China is respected, or if not respected, at least feared. Right? It is um, a major player. It was a disaster in 1905. Right? And it's, it's the prosperous age. So what are those challenges? Turns out they're huge. And I, I end up sort of, I try to profile establishment intellectuals like Tse Zhe Yuan uh, to show how and why a reformed or modified version of the orthodoxy and leftism can still work, can still be a vocabulary to talk about who are the people. And they, they're serving the party state as it exists now. And Tse Zhe Yuan famously worked, uh, allowed himself to be an advisor for the Chongqing, Chongqing government of Bo Xilai in 2010-11. Um, the, uh, and so they're hand in glove with the state. And yet they're saying, no, it's common people. This is capitalist ripoff. They're doing, a, you know, China is a capitalist economy with a socialist government. It's a little odd. And they, they face it. They address it. And they provide internal critique. And it's like liberation theology in the Catholic Church. It's really irritating for the curia and the, and the, and the, and the church hierarchy. But you can't shoot them because they're quoting the Bible, right? You know, if you get the metaphor. Um, there's, there's liberals, too, who are not in jail. They're using a different uh, structural place, the university system, which is very important for China today. And so the government has to endure a certain amount, but not much, right? And so we look at Xu Jilin and some others who are trying to find a way for liberalism to work to help a, a peaceful transition from authoritarianism to, uh, you know, better government. And then finally, what's happening in, you know, from the outside, there's in the, this is why it's a directed public sphere, not a propaganda state. Because with uh, the internet and with uh, social media, it has really changed. Can you talk about that? Because you talk um, in various, so just for listeners who haven't, um, for the benefit of listeners who haven't become readers yet, um, this chapter in particular takes us through these these different kinds of intellectuals, these different ways of being an intellectual right now in China, um, and talks a lot about them, right? The establishment intellectuals um, like Tsui, as you mentioned, the academy and public internet uh, intellectuals, um, Xu Jilin and the liberals, um, and also voices from civil society. And we'll talk a little bit about yeah. that. But in a lot of these cases, um, in, for example, in the case of the establishment establishment intellectuals, you talk about the significance of websites and blogs and yeah. social media. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about the, that? Yeah, and it has to do with the nature of the directed public sphere, which is you go to a bookstore in, in, in China, you know, it, it's like a well-run Starbucks. You know, coffee is generally pretty good. Mm-hmm. Milk is still a little weird. It's uh, usually pretty good um, spaghetti bolognese. There you That's go. The, that was my go-to. Yeah. When and I there's a it. zillion books. Mm-hmm. And it all looks great. Uh, and yet it's not a free market. And it is... You know, people say, well, it's controlled or not or what. I call it managed or directed. And I use the word directed because it comes out of the Leninist canon, Yindao. Uh, and, uh, but managed probably is equally good, just like they try to do managed economy, managed capitalism. Um, because the party ought to manage things because they know more than you do. Right? That's the, the, the that fundamental model has not changed. And, and so the intellectual world is, is they have to work within this, uh, uh to, Try to, to try to say um, whatever it is they can do. And so it is looks free, but it's not free. And that's why in the end, when we talk about civil society, yes, it's there, but it does not operate like ours. And we know with lawyers are getting arrested all the time. The, the, the prime directive for the Leninists is thou shalt never organize. You can make a point, you can make a criticism, and we actually thank you for pointing out that this guy's on the take and we're going to take him out <laughs> because that will strengthen the system. You know, a bad apple doesn't help the system. You organize with other people in another county, and you're going to you're going to be visiting the jails. And so, how do you make a difference then? And uh, I think that 
the challenge for Chinese intellectuals that I see, uh, Xu Jilin working with the Oxford Consensus, trying to find where do we find a moral ground? And Xi Jinping and, and the, the left are saying, we're not actually serving the common people. They're getting ripped. You know, the, the questions that we could ask in North America, uh, the, the uh, uh, and, and uh, uh, Chan Kunchung, Hong Kong, yeah. uh, uh, identified living in Beijing for the last 15 years, uh, writes these sci-fi novels that uh, that and he doesn't go to jail. I mean, you know, the, his Sheng Shi Zhongbo, the the translated as the fat years. I mean, it's this incredible critique. It's supposedly a few years in the future, but. The core image I pull out of his book for this uh, current period is the challenge to Chinese intellectuals. And the greatest challenge is not state repression, it is comfort. Mm. That's what I see here. And he has this little riff, which I cite, on we're 90% free, 90% freedom. And in that Starbucks, or the Xinbaka, here's 90% of all the topics and 90% of all things. And they're going like, isn't 90% you know, pretty good? And the, isn't everyone complaining that they're being entertained to death? I mean, there's too much to read anyway. Mm-hmm. And you know, he, that is an internal Chinese auto-critique saying we are letting down the side. Mm-hmm. That if we take the university appointment, if we take the grant to go to Harvard for the year, if we you know, just settle for 90% freedom, we're letting down our fellow citizens. Mm-hmm. And in fact, a picture of Chen in Starbucks in Beijing is, is the opening image of I the chapter, love, right? I love, I love that too. Now, you talk about also a kind of con- contrasting approach that some intellectuals are taking. And this brings us back to the issue of dissent that we started with. And this is the approach taken by um, Liu Xiaobo and Ai Weiwei. So since those are two names, at least Ai Weiwei, certainly that people who don't even know much about um, this history might have heard of, can you situate that kind of position within this um, moment of the story? Right. If I've been successful, uh, you'll be able to read Ai Weiwei as we already have, but more so. Yes, he's the L'Enfant Terrible. And yes, he is really pointing out uh, these limitations. And yes, he's been subject to uh, uh, terrible depredations and, you know, uh, repression by the state. But he is basically a traitor to his class. He is a Hongardai, right? You know, his dad, uh, Ai Ching, was, was a big... Oh, See, oh, exactly Canada. that. <laughs> there we we are in Canada. Oh, Canada! This is our Canadian content moment. This is wonderful. Yes. This, okay. That's, but they don't do any more than that. They do nothing more than that every day at twelve. So, for listeners, we're yeah. actually in my apartment at my desk right now, and we're right on the water. And that is the there twelve you go. p.m. reminder: we're in Canada. So there that you locates go. us. That does, and it reminds <laughs> us that we are in our own establishment too, we just are. like Ai Weiwei. Yes, we are. So, I'm very fond of uh, uh, Bill Callahan's. Uh, take on Citizen I in the JES uh, a couple years ago. And it, he very much, it, it, you know, the reason I you know, like it in part because he did it on his own, but it parallels what I see. So I think, oh, good, I'm not the only one making this stuff up. And that is, you know, that I, I Wei Wei, you can't just call him one thing. He's a fixer. He's a joker. He is a dissident. He is a, a, a an establishment intellectual. He tries to get people to work together. And, you know, he can, he can do he can he, you know he can he can chew gum and walk at the same time, you know he can do the more than one thing and so it's not to see people uh, uh, in in just one way, and to see that his way of serving the public good, it's very class based. This I mean you look at the little videos he has when he was uh, bumping heads with the police down in Sichuan around the uh, uh, earthquake. You do that in Canada and you'd be tasered so fast, you know. I mean he is really rude. Because he's a Guizhou. You know, he is from the elite. And, and they know it and he knows it. And they kept hands off for quite a while. Uh, when they really went against him is when he declined appointment to the um, uh, CPPCC, to the Chinese People's Political Consultative Congress. He refused to go the co-option route. And, and they said, okay, you're out. What about Liu Xiaobo? Liu Xiaobo is, is more our classic dissident. And the, uh, he, he didn't offer a path that could potentially work with the party. He, he wanted to go beyond the party, and they just said, no way. And so he is a prisoner of conscience. Uh, 
and uh, stands as a, a real reminder that there's a hard edge to this government. So as we move to our conclusion, Tim, why don't we talk a little bit about these three notions as they, um, as kind of we leave them off mm-hmm. in the book, right? Notion mm-hmm. of the people, notion of mm-hmm. what Chinese means here, mm-hmm. and notion of democracy. Let's mm-hmm. just kind of go through them. So right now, right, as of um, the end of the book, and maybe if we want to think about the, you know, now in 2017, if you want, what does... Um, or how, where are we in terms of the notion of the people mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. this moment? I think what I came to in the end with these ideas and having reviewed them in, as you say, this long book, um, <laughs> is palimpsetic. That there are these, these terms have these layers beneath them, this baggage, uh, now in Chinese, in modern Chinese. And so you have this, these people are going to, are the, what makes China strong. And the state should identify with the people. And But just to call the people a certain class didn't really work. But now it, the people is basically, we're back to basically Jiang Bingling. To be, mm-hmm. In 2017, to be Chinese is, um, you know, you can speak, you know, Yue or Wu or, you know, or, you know, uh, you know Beifang. But you're, you're, in other words, you're Han. Mm-hmm. So Chinese is, they are really struggling with, is Chinese... Han, or is it citizen of the People's Republic? And I think it's that's really um, subject to debate now, and is problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, what is it to be? That's for if who are the people for Chinese? Is how Western can you be and still be Chinese? And so I do point out that Chinese intellectuals today, if you want, at least until recently, if you wanted to have influence in Chinese intellectual circles, you had to have a job in China. So plenty of People, I, I use the example of Zhang Xudong. You know, when he's at New York University and trained at Duke, you know, people started dissing him because they say, well, you know, you're a far, you know, you, you're a Hua mm-hmm. And I think what's unspoken is if you don't live in the constraints we live in, what you say is not particularly relevant. Mm-hmm. And so now he's back, he's got cross appointment at Chinese universities because he wants to be part of, and he is, uh, an influential intellectual. So that the, the issue of what is Chinese is, um, uh, 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 fraught, uh, and also with Hong Kong and Taiwan, uh, Sinophone environments that have very different issues. And they're layered. Again, it is, yes, it has to be something with speaking Chinese. It has to be something with uh, Chinese, you know, food and culture, if you like. Uh, but there's, this is the whole thing. We haven't talked about the new Confucians and, yeah. and all that. That's part of this thing is what of our heritage matters? And uh, there's lively debate. I use Bai Tongdong because I particularly think he's smart, uh, what he's talking about, and not uniform. Some of the Kang Wang and others, you know, are, they're just, they're, they're a bit thin, you know, and they actually don't know much about Confucianism and uh, are, are, are just uh, uh, politicizing it. But that's a whole separate debate. But it means that today the debate of Chinese is, China is strong. China's, you know, got its place. You know, in the 80s, when we worked with Chinese scholars, we were forever giving them money. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, sure, doesn't, you know, my Canadian grant will pay enough. They say, never mind, we'll pay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, uh, and what is democracy? Um, it is still, if, if the inequality at each time, uh, you know, it was like, if you're not the right class, or the, 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 the word for me today, and I only mentioned in passing, is suture, mm-hmm. your quality. There's this very class, what the Australians we call culture with a K, you know, and uh, you know you, you just you just love culture, you know. So uh, and the number of people have said to me, "Oh, we need democracy, we need elections," but you know you can't really have democracy because these peasants would all vote, you know, or these not just peasants, these liomang, these you know, and so there's the the democracy is is still you know uh, something that they're wrestling with. I think that some of the arguments that the people are profiling in the, in the last chapter are beginning to do very interesting things of reconceptualizing liberalism for current conditions that I would hope, and how I end the book, is to say, for understandable reasons, Chinese intellectuals have focused on Chinese problems. China's had a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. But today, China is so much stronger, and the world is so much more messy. I end with a challenge. The only thing I feel that I can say to Chinese intellectuals they ought to do which is, please write some about us. I write about you, you write about me. Not me personally, but, you know, Canada, United States. What do you see 
You know, what, do you, what it works. We need your voice. And that is a perfect note, I think, to end on. Um, so, Tim, there's obviously, before we come to a close, there's obviously a million billion things we haven't talked about, right? The book is extraordinarily rich. Is there anything before we close in particular oh, no. that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to put on the table for listeners? No, you gave me a good opportunity. And I think what I would like to say goes to your last question, what's next? Mm-hmm. And uh, if I'll jump. Yes, yes. So what's next, Tim? Yeah. The, um, what I got out of this is that I've had my say. And there it is, mm-hmm. you know, as uh, Monty Python, my theory, which is mine. And um, I've, in the past five years, worked on a project basically of translating Chinese intellectuals contemporary Chinese public intellectuals, uh, with colleagues and with students. So part of the graduate training, getting, as I said, from working on China, working with Chinese, so I've got mainland students and Canadian and North American students, and we pair them up and we translate and we just do good old-fashioned synology, mm-hmm. you know, what Jeremy Barmey calls new synology. You know, word by word, grammar by grammar, then the context, then the discourse, and then the culture, and then the, uh, on the way out. And I love it. I think that we... I think the Chinese translate far too many of our books, and we translate far too few of theirs. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel what I can usefully do now is to try to get some of these voices that I've seen uh, work with teams of people to get uh, more of the Chinese voices into the broader, not just into classes of, of modern Chinese history or literature, but to get them you know, in, in that sense. So the person I don't emphasize who's so important is Wang Hui, because he's the one case... He's got five books in English, mm-hmm. but we need 25 other people. Well, thank you so much, Tim. It's really been a pleasure. Congratulations mm-hmm. on the book and best of luck with that work. Thank you so much. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks so much for joining us this time, and we'll catch you again next time. <laughs>